Our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. Um, and before we uh, continue to consider this passage, would you please pause with me in prayer? Uh, Father, again, uh, we are um, attentive to that final statement of this passage uh, where you call those who have ears to hear to hear what the Spirit says to us, your church. And so that, again, is our prayer. We don't want just to be spending time thinking in the next 20 minutes. We want to be spending time listening to you. And so we know that we need your help. We need your spirit to give us minds and hearts to hear. So would you please do that? Would you please help me to speak faithfully and clearly that we more and more might be your faithful church? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us this morning, we are partway through a series where we are looking at the seven letters at the beginning of Revelation that Jesus has written to his seven churches. And we've said that those seven churches are meant to represent not just those churches, but the churches throughout the world and throughout history. So that these letters, if we listen rightly, we hear Jesus speaking to us. So in this time where there is much confusion in our culture, much confusion as a church throughout the country, throughout the world, we are simply seeking to listen, to listen and hear what Jesus says to us so that he can define who we are and what it means to faithfully follow him. And this morning, as, as we begin looking at this letter to Pergamum, I want us to notice that Jesus very clearly is writing letters in the midst of wartime. These are letters to a church that he sees as being in the midst of a battle. Uh, we see this really from the outset. Do you notice how Jesus begins? You know, every letter begins with Jesus reminding something about who he is. And here he says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't know if you're like this, but for me, growing up, you know, as a kid, I used to romanticize swords. You know, there are these cool things that you use to defeat dragons. But, but in that day, that was not how a sword was viewed. The sword was an instrument of violence. That was its only purpose. It was a purpose for battle, for warfare. Jesus begins this letter by saying, I am the one who is armed for battle. 
Scripture throughout tells us that we who are followers of Christ in this age are in the midst of a battle. It's very clear that the battle is not against people, not against flesh and blood, says Ephesians. It's not that we're fighting against another nation, another group of people, not against another political party. The battle, it says, is against the demonic powers. Revelation speaks of that specifically as as the devil, as, as Satan and his forces. And if we were to continue looking through Revelation to the end, we would see that Revelation describes how this battle is taking place, that when Jesus died and he rose again, he defeated Satan. And his doom is sure. But in this time between Jesus' ascent to heaven and his return, Satan is trying to destroy as many people with him as possible. He is unleashing all of his power to try to bring down the church of God. And so Jesus... When he is speaking to these churches, he is writing to churches that he knows are being attacked. Whether we realize it or not, day in and day out, we are surrounded by a spiritual battle. We are participants in a spiritual battle. And Jesus reminds us of that every letter. At the very end of each letter, what does he say? To the one who conquers. That's military language. He's saying, to the one who, as he is being attacked by Satan, prevails, I will give these things. These letters are wartime letters calling us to stand firm in the face of attack. Now we ask, what does this attack look like? What is involved? And perhaps you, like me, when we think of attack, almost immediately go to a show of force. We might think of what we were talking about more last week, the idea of of persecution, where political powers are used to make things difficult for Christians. And certainly we see that taking place when Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum. Notice the first thing he says about them. He says, and if you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to, because we're just going to be looking through this letter. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was one of many cities throughout the empire that wanted Rome's favor. I mean, your, your worth as a city had a lot to do with how much Rome liked you, how much they were willing to trade with you, how much they were willing to invest in you. But Pergamum took their love of Rome a step further than most cities. They had a temple specifically devoted to Caesar himself. They made their emperor not just someone they felt patriotic towards, but someone that they worshipped as a god. And the expectation was if you were a part of this city, you were going to participate in these feasts, in this adoration of the emperor. And so Jesus is saying, I know what is going on. I know how much influence Satan has, that his influence is so complete that even a mere human being is worshipped. I know that about you. And we can see that in this city, it is not easy to be a Christian. In this city, there has been battle and there has been a cost to the battle. Jesus mentions Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't know much about Antipas. Presumably he was a member of the church in Pergamum. Maybe he was even a pastor. But at one point, it seems, he was pressured to offer worship to the emperor. And instead of submitting himself, he maintained his faith in Jesus. He declared his faith in Jesus. Jesus says, he is my faithful witness. Would you not love to have Jesus say that about you? That was my faithful witness right there. And being a faithful witness, his life was taken. This is part of the battle 
that Jesus is speaking of. This is a casualty of war. And it seems that the church in Pergamum, even though they are facing this attack, even though they are inevitably fearing, fearful for their lives, is weathering this attack well. Jesus says, you hold fast to my name and have not denied it. In the face of persecution, this church has stood firm. They continue to gather as a church. They continue to claim the name of Christ. They continue to tell their city around them that Jesus is king. But there's another battle that is going on, or another way that Satan is attacking. You see, throughout Scripture, we're told that Satan's primary form of attack isn't direct force. His primary form of attack is deceit. We know that from day one, don't we? In in, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't that Satan came with all sorts of terror. He came deceiving Eve and brought humanity down in the process. And so also throughout the book of Revelation, Satan is described as the great deceiver of the world. His attack oftentimes is not in the form of direct force. It's in the form of deceit. It's the form of exploiting desires to lead people away from God. And it would seem that the church in Pergamum, though they are staying faithful when it comes to resisting the force, are succumbing to Satan's more subtle attack. Jesus says to them, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitan teaching was deceiving people within Pergamum, leading them to make the same mistake that Israel made with Balaam and Balak. Now, now what what mistake is that? You have to go way back to the book of Numbers. We're talking about many, many, many centuries earlier when Israel was still in the wilderness. And they were moving towards the promised land. You have this king, King Balak, the king of Moab, and he's worried because he knows that Israel is a force to be reckoned with. And he believes that the only way that his country can have victory over Israel is through supernatural help. So he he looks for and he finds this rather exotic, kind of almost sorcerer figure, Balaam, who seems to be famous for having some degree of of power. And he he says to Balaam, I will pay you a whole lot of money if you will curse the people of Israel for me. And so Balaam, after a long kind of process, eventually accepts that, and, and they go to a part where they're seeing just a bit of the people of Israel camped out. They offer all sorts of sacrifices, and, and Balak is wanting them to basically say, may you become like dust, may you be destroyed, may Moab conquer you. But instead, when Balaam starts speaking, he blesses Israel, speaking of how glorious they are. And at the end, you know, Balak essentially says, well, well that was unexpected. And Balaam says, it's not my fault. The Lord God would not let me curse them. He would only allow me to bless them. So Balak thinks he's going to keep trying, so he tries it a second time. They go to a second place, seven sacrifices, and blessing happens again. They go to a third place, seven sacrifices, and then Balaam blesses like he has never before. And what we're supposed to understand in the section of, of, of Numbers is the way that even when Israel has no clue what's going on, God is faithfully protecting his people. He will not let his people be cursed. But the story doesn't end there. 
we're supposed to, I think, read between the lines because it's suggested but not explicit that at the end of this time, Balaam basically comes to Balak and says, you know, this is never going to work. God is never going to allow me to curse the people, but there is a way to take them down. Not through direct attack, but through deceit, through exploiting their desires to lead them away from the God who's protecting them. And so at the beginning of chapter 25, we see that that's what's happened. We're told that while Israel is camping in the area, many of the Israelites begin to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, and they participate in idolatrous sacrifices and idolatrous feasts. And as a result, thousands of Israelites end up being killed in punishment. Why? Why, after God is showing himself so faithful to his people, would his people just, just do that? Just turn aside to sexual morality and to offering, you know, to being part of idolatrous feasts? Well, part of it, I'm sure, was just a desire for pleasure. There was something exotic about the foreign, about the unknown. Part of it, it would seem, was a desire for power. There was a belief that perhaps by participating in these, these worshiping of Baal, they would have access to a new form of power. But whatever it was, underlying all of it was Satan's work of deceiving them to believe that their desires would be met apart from God rather than in God. And it was their downfall. And so Jesus is saying here to the church of Pergamum, the same thing is happening to you. Even as I am holding you fast in the face of assault, Yet you are being deceived by the teaching of the Nicolaitans and and turned aside. Your desires are being exploited. Now, now what is this teaching of the Nicolaitans? As best we can tell, the Nicolaitans had a fairly simple message, and that was, as long as you have faith in Jesus, as long as you call yourself a Christian, it doesn't really matter what you do. That that you're forgiven, that you're in Christ, and so you don't really need to worry about that much of a changed life as a follower of Jesus. And you can just imagine how, how desirable, enticing that message would be. Because Pergamum, the people in Pergamum, when they came to Christ, they had to leave behind a lot. There was a lot that was different. This was a city, a culture, where sexual immorality was just the norm. Prostitution was just the norm. And so to be called to something different was a challenge. But here it's saying you don't need to be. Or even more so, economically, if you wanted to do anything in that city, if you were a merchant, if you were a manufacturer, you needed to be part of a trade guild. But the thing about every single trade guild is they each had their own idol that they would have feasts towards and that they would worship. And if you didn't participate in that, that would be career suicide for you. And here the Nicolaitans come and says, you know what? If Jesus has your soul, what does it matter what happens to your body? What does it matter whether you participate in these idol feasts because you know those idols aren't real? It doesn't really matter how you live as long as your faith is in Jesus. And so you can imagine, here's what's going on. They are being led astray, even as they are recognizing that they're being attacked, and they are praying, and they are standing firm in the face of attack, yet at the very same time, they are being loose when it comes to morals. They are compromising themselves when it comes to feasts. They are being attacked in a subtle way by Satan and taken down, even as they're trying to resist the other piece. 
And so as we understand what Jesus is speaking of here, it's, we, we need to, as we're always doing through these letters, ask what is Jesus saying to us? In what way might we be being addressed by these words ourselves? You know, it seems to me that right now there is a decent amount of fear within the church, within America. There's a lot of discussion about freedoms being lost. You know, we mentioned about baking cakes or, or issues that Christian colleges are going to have to face or other ways where religious liberties seem up for grabs. And those are, are real and legitimate concerns. But I want to suggest that even as we are trying to put up all the defenses to resist that, Satan is already behind our lines picking us apart, using deceit and exploiting our desires. Exploiting just like he did in the Bible, exploiting the desires for pleasure and exploiting the desires for power. I mean, just try to give an example of, of one of each, how he exploits our desire for pleasure. You know, um, Scripture has this, this fairly clear sexual ethic, right? We've spoken about it, that, that sex is meant to be within the confines of a marriage between a husband and wife, and that the marriage bond is sacred and not to be ended for just any reason. And we know that that calling that Christ calls us to is different from the world around us. But what is striking to me is over the last few decades how, how, how each of those issues are being compromised within the church. Of how it becomes increasingly common for, for divorce to be done purely based on irreconcilable differences. For how it's not uncommon for Christians to pursue sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of marriage or how it's not uncommon for Christians to endorse and to participate in same-sex sexual relationships. Now, I don't want to speak of any of those things trivially because I realize each of those things that I just mentioned involves something deeply personal, there are complicated stories, and there can be a lot of pain for each of those things. But at the same time, if we're honest, we'll recognize in each of these areas what ultimately oftentimes is the decision. It's the decision between following what my heart says is going to make me happy and following the clear teaching of Scripture. And what Satan is doing is he's exploiting our desire for happiness to lead us away from God. Consider about how Satan uses our desire for power. I realize I'm already in sensitive territory, so I might as well just keep going. <laughs> what should we think? How should we interpret it when Christian leaders hear of a presidential candidate who is caught on tape boasting that he is thinking about sexually assaulting women, and the Christian leaders basically just shrug their shoulders? It's locker room talk. Or when, when, when the President of the United States says clearly racist statements and Christian leaders remain silent. Or when the President of the United States is found to have had an affair while his wife is pregnant and Christian leaders come on press to defend saying that, they, that everyone's allowed to make mistakes and people should be forgiven. Just contrast this for a moment with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had access to the most powerful political person in the area of Herod. And he could have sought to use that position to make things easier for Christ's followers, 
But what does John the Baptist do in that context? He says to Herod and to his wife, you should not be married because both of you divorced people. And he doesn't just lose his political influence, he loses his head for it. What does it say when Christian leaders will remain silent about things where Scripture is clear? Why does this take place? If I'm making you uncomfortable in this moment, please understand I am not trying to speak about politics here. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. There are problems on both sides, without a doubt. This is an issue about Christianity, of people who, because they're wanting to do good things, are compromising themselves when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to following Christ. See, we are falling for the same lie that people in that day were following with the Nicolaitans to believe that as long as we love Jesus and follow him, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. As long as we're seeking good things for the advancement of our nation, it doesn't matter if we compromise ourselves. And the only reason I'm speaking so frankly and obviously for me so uncomfortably in some ways is because Jesus is so clear about how he feels about this. You might remember a couple letters ago, Jesus says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And if you're wondering what that means in Greek, the word hate literally means hate. He is against it. He is opposed to what happens when people are succumbing to this teaching. And here, what does Jesus say? He says to those who are endorsing the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying you need, in love, to confront those who are living as if their changed lives don't matter. Because if they do not change, I am going to come with my sword, and and to their surprise, I will not be fighting with them, I will be fighting against them. Those who choose to let their desire for power or pleasure be their master rather than Jesus and who do not repent will find that they have made an enemy of Jesus himself. That's what this letter says. Now perhaps you're feeling a tension right now, I think that's appropriate, because there are two truths that we have to hold on to. Both of them are crucial. On one hand, one of the truths that we focus on again and again, and rightly so, is that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. All of our sins are dealt with on the cross, and not only that, but even though we make mistakes again and again and again because we do, yet in Christ we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are loved and accepted. And that is absolutely true. But as we see here, the Bible is also clear that trusting Jesus means putting him in control of your life and surrendering all things to him. The Nicolaitan teaching is a lie of Satan. The truth is that after we trust Christ, how we live is important. To be a Christian means that Jesus is our king. And that means that whenever we realize we are disobeying Christ, we change. We, as Jesus says here, 
repent. The New Testament is filled. It is filled with warnings that those who do not understand this, those who claim to trust in Jesus but who do not surrender their lives to him are not actually in Christ. And so this letter, it's alerting us to the battleground that we are actually on. I would suggest to you our primary battle is not against the potentials of political persecution. The primary battle that you and I are on are not on that rocky hill, but on the smooth plain of deceit and desire. And it is a battle of resistance. Resisting the deceptive call to follow our hearts when it leads us away from Jesus to resist the lie, the lie of Satan, that our heart knows better what we want than our Savior does. And when we realize we have failed, and we do, it is a battle of repenting. This morning, I don't know how the Holy Spirit is is speaking to you. I'm struck again and again by that phrase, who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says. The Spirit is speaking. But if, if right now the Spirit is bringing to your attention some way that you know that you are in disobedience to Christ. You've known it for a while. You've kind of just kind of pushed it away. You've allowed Satan to deceive you, believing that it is not significant when it actually is. I want you to know that Jesus speaks with love to you when he says, repent. And when he says that he is calling you into his embrace, he is calling you to experience forgiveness. He is calling you to find that your desires are actually met in him and not apart from him. Because because that's also what we see in this letter, that, that the battle that we are facing, the battleground of desire is not just about resisting. It's also about hoping. Because the issue is not with our desires. Our desires are given by God. Our desire for pleasure, our desire for power, these are good things. The mistake we make is when we allow Satan to tell us that those desires are met outside of Christ rather than in Christ. And do you notice how Jesus concludes this letter to make that clear? He says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Manna, if you were with us a number of weeks ago, you'll remember this was the way that God nourished his people while they were in wilderness. It was the bread from heaven. And Jesus says when he is on earth, I am the full bread from heaven. I am the one who nourishes your soul. And so Jesus is saying, if you look to me, I will give you the hidden manna that is found in me. I will nourish you your soul if you wait on me. You know, there is a strength, there is a joy that comes in knowing Jesus that cannot be described, it can only be experienced. It's not a joy that removes us from suffering or takes away the hardship of life, but it's a joy if we allow it to fill us that gives us an equilibrium a gratitude, a capacity for delight that is deeper than the momentary pleasures that we can experience from time to time. 
Jesus says, if you prevail, if you stand firm, if you wait on me, I will nourish you while you are in the wilderness with this hidden manna that is found in me. And he also says, to the one who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And Isaiah, you know, God promises his people that there will be a day when his people will be redeemed and God will give them a new name. He does this a lot, if you've noticed. So Abram, he says, I'm going to call you Abraham because you are now the father of many nations. Jacob, whose name literally just means like rascal, he says, I'm going to call you Israel, which means he wrestles with God. Jesus is the same thing, right? In the New Testament, Simon, you're the rock. I mean, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is not new. Simon the Rock Peter is the first time this happens because you, he says, are going to be the rock on which I build this church. Each time Jesus says, I know you better than you know yourself. I'm giving you a new name. It is a sign of acceptance, of welcome, of knowing the person. And Jesus says, if you, if you overcome, if you prevail, if you hold fast to me, even in the face of temptation, I am giving you a new name that only you will know. It's, it's a picture of belonging, of love. Jesus knows you. He knows not the person you once were, but the person he's making you into. And it is beautiful. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Remain faithful to me and I will nourish your soul and give you a joy deeper than you can find elsewhere. Remain faithful to me and I will give you a deeper power, a deeper access, belonging into the inner circle of God himself. He's saying this is the battle. The battle is not just resisting, although it is. The battle is not just repenting, although it is. The battle is also hoping of knowing that when your heart cries out, and it does, That the answer to those desires is not what Satan tells you it is. It's not turning away from God and finding it elsewhere. That is your downfall. It's turning to me and waiting on me and trusting that in me you have everything. That is what it looks like to conquer. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to you and to me. I'd like to invite us, as our custom, to take time listening, to, to, to reflect before God. And if there's anything that God has brought to our mind where we realize that we have been looking apart from Christ rather than in Christ for our desires to be met, I invite you to use this time as a time to confess and to repent. And then I will lead you in a few moments in prayer. So you please pray silently with me. Father, you know us intimately. You know our failures, and you also know the ways that you are changing us. Lord, those areas where we have looked elsewhere, 
apart from you, we acknowledge our failure. Father, we confess our selfishness. We confess our faithlessness. And in this moment, Lord, each of us in our own ways, we repent and turn to you and ask that you would change us and renew us and make us more and more your faithful people. As, as we prayed earlier, we pray that you would lead us not in temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. And Father, I pray also for those of us who feel the weight of our sin and are repenting that you would reassure us in the midst of this time also of your forgiveness, of your grace, and of the work of your spirit in our hearts and our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel also from Revelation. Jesus says to us, his church, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, is now alive and reigning at the right hand of the Father. In him, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.